Okay, so if you've just uh, joined us, um, or perhaps you've been away for a little while, we've, um, as it's been mentioned a little bit, we're in the middle of um, a series, Tifana Ateatua, the family of God. And really what we've been doing over the last um, three weeks, we've been building out uh, this theme. And uh, just to recap, we kicked off uh, this whole uh, series by having the um, amazing... Um, uh, Dr. Jen Russell uh, gave a brilliant talk on Mother's Day, and if you haven't heard that, I really encourage you to um, download that or get, get the podcast of that online. I then followed that talk up by exploring what does the Bible mean when it says that humanity is not a collection of isolated individuals, but rather the creature called humanity is a diverse, multi-ethnic family. And the point that the Bible is trying to make is that, you know, this Humanity is a diverse, multi-ethnic family. You've kind of got to think about this as like a multifaceted lens. And it's only as each part or each of this multifaceted lens is together can humanity image uh, the, the image God into the world. And so we talked about the way in which each nation, language, tribe, and tongue has basically like got a, a unique contribution to make into this multifaceted lens uh, through which uh, humanity can um, uh, image God into the world. I then um, talked about last week how the fact that the diverse unity of humanity is on, it can only be as a diverse you know, unity that humanity can image God into the world because at the center of our life is the Trinity, that God himself, God's self, is a diverse unity, a Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the light, life, and love that is kind of shared around the Trinity, that not only generates the very life of God, um, but also within each member of the Trinity. You know, the Father is not the Father without the Son or the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Spirit without the Father or the Son. And the Son is not the Son without the Father or the Spirit. So you've kind of got this, you know, this diverse unity where a one is never able to be a one by itself. And this is the point that really challenges us uh, within our Western uh, frame of what does it mean to be a unique individual. And this, in this real sense, is just as like the oneness of the human family is actually made up of the many tribes, tongues, and nations, and just as the oneness of the Trinity is made up by you know, diverse Father, Son, and Spirit, us as individual human beings can only experience what it means to be truly human when our oneness is actually made up of the humanity of others. A one cannot be a one uh, by itself, but rather my humanity, my ex I cannot fully experience what it means to be a human being uh, without experiencing others uh, in my life. And in particular, what we find in the book of Genesis is actually that otherness that needs to be involved or the diversity that makes up our oneness also speaks to the maleness and the femaleness of uh, humanity. That human, that, you know, the creature called humanity is actually a plural entity, male and female. And that's where we're going to go uh, today. So, you all ready for this? Very good. Um, now, I have to say at the outset, you know, I've got like only 20 to 25 minutes, and there's only so much ground you can cover in 20 to 25 minutes. So I'll probably take 30. Uh, <laughs> but um, I want to say that this is actually a, I want to recognize this is actually quite a nuanced conversation that needs to take place here. And, you know, I'm not going to be able to cover all the ground that I want to be able to cover. And for many people, of course, 
This is actually quite a painful experience, as in society we've you know, really struggled with the way that the Western world has um, arranged things. But in saying that, although I'm not going to be able to colour in the whole map for us uh, today, again, within the kind of the 35, 40 minute span that I've allotted myself, uh, which makes me to an hour, but what I want to do today is at least kind of, we can't fill in the map, what I want to do is kind of get some of the theological edges in place so we can pin that down and we can uh, hopefully work from there. So in order to do this, um, I need to head to um, your, your favourite book and mine, uh, the book of Genesis. Now, I've taken a few liberties here. I've done a bit of the translation work myself. I often do this, um, but I'm warning you that some of the translations up here um, is, some, is some of my work, but I will, um, hopefully I will po I'll point that out to you as we go along. So here we go, the book of Genesis, um, Genesis chapter 2. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in, in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground, but a stream would rise from the earth, and the, the Hebrew word is the word Adama, and the water and the water, the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the earthling, the Adam, from the dust of the earth, Adama, and breathed into the earthling's nostril, the breath, nostrils, the breath of life, and the earthling became a living being. So here the image here is of God as a potter working with the Adama, the earth, to create an Adam, the earthling. So can you see what the, the Hebrew word play here is playing on the word Adam and Adama? That's, that's kind of what's going on uh, here. And um, the point to make is, at this part of the narrative, what we have is an undifferentiated earthling, neither male nor female. And because it's a sole undifferentiated earthling, the Adama, um, it's actually, um, it's, as a single entity, it's unable to reflect into the world the diverse unity of the Trinity. So as a single entity, it's unable to reflect into the world the multi, you know, diverse nature of the Trinity. And so the report that God gives um, at this point is that it's not good that the earthling should remain a single entity or a single part. So if we just head to the next part here, then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. You're doing very well, by the way. You're doing very well at this point. You're doing very well. So then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the earthling whom the, the Lord God had formed. And the Lord God said, it is not good that the earthling should be a single part. The Hebrew word there is the word bud. That just means a single part. And then, um, so God resolves this uh, situation. There's singleness, but what we need is a diverse plurality by doing the next thing. Then God said, it's not good the earthling should be a single part, but I will make him an Aza as a counterpart. And the Hebrew word is the word nagat, which means a part which is opposite or standing opposite to one another. Now, I haven't translated the word Aza here, and I've done that uh, deliberately. We'll get to the other Hebrew words in a minute. Now, uh, and that's because for the, um, the 21 times that this word Aza um, is translated into the Old Testament, we've got two here, 
three other times the word Azar is associated with a nation that Israel calls on to get it out of trouble. When besieged, Israel calls on an Aza, be that Syria or Egypt or somebody else, someone else stronger, to come and um, to rescue them. There's 16 other times that this word Aza is translated into um, in the Old Testament, has to do with, or is in with reference to God being Israel's Aza, or um, Yahweh being Israel's Aza to uh, the king, so like David. So in either Israel's in a life-threatening situation or David's in a life-threatening situation, you call out to Yahweh as your Aza, and um, this whole situation changes. Now, a little rule in hermeneutics, a little rule about interpreting the Bible or interpreting words is around usage. What are, how is a word used? Not necessarily the lexicographical terms, but you want to have a look at how a word is used. So what we find here is that this word Aza is used to change a situation that is where the viability is threatened to become viable again. So where Israel's viability is threatened, you call upon the Aza and suddenly Israel is viable again. Or when David is threatened or the king is threatened, you call upon the Aza and that changes the situation from being um, non-viable to viable. And in this situation here, you've got the formation of a single entity which is non-viable in terms of being able to image the diverse complexity of God into the world, and so God creates an Aza to remedy that situation. Now, why all this convoluted thing about Hebrew? Well, usually that word gets, gets translated as helper, right? which usually in our language usually means subordinate, right? I'm Andy's helper. You know, I'll roll out the cables, I'll get, that, I'll get the coffee, right? We normally mean, the word helper normally means subordinate. But that can't mean what it means here, because Yahweh is never Israel's subordinate. Does that make sense? So the word at least means stronger, right? Or as equal to. And then actually you get the point here when we get to uh, the word counterpart or nagad. So let's just jump to the next part. This is going on and on a bit. Um, So (laughs) the Lord God caused a deep sleep uh, to fall upon the earthling. Um, The Hebrew here, I haven't translated it for you, is is the tademah. Um, this, this kind of deep sleep only happens two times in the Bible. This here and when Abraham hits into a deep sleep. Um, anyway, cause a deep sleep to fall upon the earthling Adam, and, the, and then the Adam goes to sleep. Then, and the Lord God took one of the earthlings' side, and the word usually gets translated into English as rib, and that's the word uh, sailor, and closed up its place with flesh. Now the word rib here, when we usually think of the word rib, we think of the world of anatomy, don't we? A single anatomical part of a human being. But the word sailor or the word rib in the Hebrew world actually is an architectural term. It means the side of a building. Or it means the, um, if you have a doorway, like one of those doorways, it's kind of got two doors. One half of that door is called a rib. So the image here is of God forming the, an Aza by splitting the earthling in half, literally in half. That's what the word means, to create, and again, the word here is a counterpart. How are we going? You're doing well. You, man, you guys are going so great. Usually I wouldn't try and pull this off at any congregation, but I knew you'd take it, so <laughs> doing super well here. So, and then, um, so then we have the report of this, and then the earthling said, oh, at last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, this one shall be called woman, 
Ashar, for out of man Ish, this one was taken. So what we have here in the book of uh, Genesis is the Bible is not trying to explain biology, right? It's not trying to explain how we got men and women or how we got male and female human beings, but it's trying to answer the theological question, why females, why males? And it's to make the point that female and male humans, while necessarily different from each other, are equal partners in the single reality called humanity. And it's only in the diverse unity as humanity, as a society, as a community, is it like a church, as a family, as a friendship group, as an organization, or as a marriage, only in the diverse unity can God be imaged into the world. It's only as equal partners in the plurality of this reality of humanity that a man or a woman can actually image God into uh, the world. Now, as we let that little theological point sink into our brains, just think about how radical this idea would have been five to six centuries before the time of Jesus. <laughs> like, this is a complete minority report in the ancient world. They weren't, re they weren't reading Virginia Woolf back then, right? It wasn't on the agenda. This was like five to six centuries before. This is a complete minority report to the idea that male and females are equal partners in imaging God into the world. That was completely not, it was a minority report in the ancient world. It was just completely not part of their worldview or system of thinking at all. This was new science for them. In fact, it was new science even in the world uh, of Jesus. And in fact, it was hugely disruptive and seen as uh, seditious for the way that society was uh, constructed. So for example, and we kind of miss how shocking this is because we don't often feel the difference between the narrative world of the Bible and the culture into which the Bible was written in. Take, for example, this little passage here uh, from the Gospel of Luke. So here we have from the Gospel of Luke. Soon afterwards, he, that's Jesus, went through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, the disciples, as well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Chusa, and Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Now, in my nerd life, which is hard to imagine any other life that I have, but as opposed to my rock and roll life, but uh, in my nerd life, um, you know, I live in the world of ancient documents. I know, who wants that? Who wants? I'm doing it for you. So I live in the world of ancient documents, and, um, you know, the thing is, you actually would never, ever see a passage like this in the ancient world. In the ancient documents of the world, things like this just don't, you just don't see passages like this at all. And that's just, a, I'm just telling you that as a scientific fact. Um, not only did Jesus have many female disciples as, you know, here, which is a shock because no rabbi ever did, 
And to be a disciple meant that you were trained and you were taught, which again was not part of the Jewish world kind of at all, you know, to be formally trained as a female, but also for the purposes of being a rabbi, which no rabbi ever was. There were no women rabbis in the ancient world. Now, also to say that over 90% of the population were lived in a subsistence kind of level of, you know, of, of life. And, you know, less than 1% were um, above that grade. Yet here we have documented as part of Jesus' ministry team as women who have basically got enough means to not only support themselves, but to support, um, you know, Jesus' ministry. Now, here's the point I'm trying to make here, is that writing ancient documents was wildly, wildly, wildly expensive. It is just hugely expensive. So when you get into my nerd world of ancient documents, what you see is the ancient Greek texts, for example, of the Bible, there are no gaps. There are only letters. It's just like a it's like looking at the matrix. It's like a stream of letters. There's no gaps to, for words. There's no gaps for punctuation. Nothing. It's just, a, it's just because it's so expensive to write. It's incredibly expensive. It's so expensive you can't punctuate. You know, that's how expensive it was. Every letter was money. Every letter was money. Now, keep that in your head when you think about the, um, that the price or the intentionality, therefore, of documenting the fact that women were part of Jesus' ministry. And not only that, think about the fact that the Gospels documented the fact that it was only women who were at the foot of the cross at the time of Jesus' death. And not only that, but you know, in a culture where a woman's testimony didn't held no place in a court of law, was, was not admitted into the court um, of law at all, but that the people who were charged as the first witnesses of the resurrection and also, therefore, the first evangelists were the following. Jonah, the wife of Chusa, who was the chief head of staff for Herod's household, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, Mary the mother of James, Mary the wife of Clopas, Jesus' auntie, Salome the mother of James and John. Do you see what's going on here, right? To, to say that the Gospels are swimming against the cultural tide is to misunderstand what swimming is. It's to completely misunderstand. It was they were very, very intentional about the picture that they were trying to uh, produce here. And this is even more remarkable is when you put this situation alongside population data. Sorry to give you all this, like all these facts and figures. But you have to put the situation not only against the price of writing, but the population data, which in the ancient Roman world was, was very odd. In the Roman world, the female population only made up 33% of the Roman Empire. So there's, you've, got, you've got to go like, oh, wow, so there's only 33% of the Roman Empire is made up of women, and yet here they are, and there's exuberant piece of documents being documented for, the, for one reason, right? It's trying to articulate something that God is doing in the world. Now, the Roman population of, for females was only made up 33% because of actually some rather grisly actions that used to take place in the Roman world, one of which was the exposure of um, female uh, babies. And, um, and we've got, I've got a little, again, back in the nerd world of ancient documents, I've got a little letter here that was written in the first century from a soldier who was stationed in Alexandria uh, writing to uh, his wife back in Rome. Here it is. He writes, know that I'm still in Alexandria, 
and do not worry if they all come back and I remain in Alexandria. I ask and beg you to take care of our baby son, and as soon as I receive payment, I shall send it up to you. If you are delivered of a child before I come home, if it's a boy, keep it. If a girl, discard it. You have sent me word, do not forget me. How can I forget you? I beg you not to worry. It's a charming letter, isn't it? Except if you're a baby girl. This, this, actually, this is how the ancient world worked. It was incredibly brutal. But I have to say, compelled by the narrative of Genesis, of the diverse, this image of the diverse male and female huma, uh, image or unity of humanity, it's God's image bearers, and the example of Jesus fresh in their minds. The early church banned um, this and a number of other incredibly brutal practices against women. And in addition to this, ensured that women actually held equal authority in uh, the life of the church as well as men. Leading many, you know, women led many of the house churches uh, in the ancient world. The Apostle Paul um, names a number of women who are leaders, not only as, as leaders, but actually as apostles and businesswomen, and names a number of them. Out of the prominent church leaders that Paul mentions in the book of Romans, in Romans 16, um, 15 are women. In contrast to the surrounding culture where women were married off way before, mostly before they were teenagers, uh, in the early church, women could get married older. They could actually choose also who they could marry. And if um, in a marriage situation where, unfortunately, um, she becomes a widow, she was actually able, a woman was able to actually hang on to the land and the possessions of her husband so that she could support not only herself and her children. Within the early church, the expectation was that men and women were um, would to exhibit the same levels of chastity uh, in marriage, which was, which was certainly not the case in the Roman Empire. And so while the Roman Empire struggled with the lack of females in its population at 33%, the early church was, was comprised approximately of 60% females which was not least because of the status being returned to them as being co-image bearers uh, in the family of God. Can we see what's going on here? Like, it's actually quite a radical move, isn't it? It's a very radical shift. Um, I've got this from Wayne Meeks, who's a scholar from Yale, quite a good university, one might say. Not as good as Otago, but, you know, we try. He says this, woman, are Paul's fellow workers as evangelists and teachers, both in terms of their position in the larger society and in terms of their participation in Christian communities. Then a number of women broke through the normal expectations of female roles. So as disciples of Jesus, how can we tap into this same narrative and be part of fueling cultural renewal uh, today? I think the first thing, um, as we are really challenged by this, is to A, realise the fact that we ourselves live in a culture. We live in a culture, and our presuppositions are actually shaped by the way we live in our culture. Not what we think about the culture, but the way that we live in our culture. You see, we're actually, our thinking is more shaped by what we do than what we think 
we are doing. It's by, through our participation that actually forms our view of the world. And um, one of the things I've been learning recently is actually how much our world has not accounted for women in just the everyday design of everyday uh, things. And I mean basically everything. Um, car design, furniture design, the size and shape of pots and pans, the size and shape of doors, door handles, the tread of a step, uh, the height of benches, the uh, safety equipment like stab vests, seat belts, airbags, body armour, safety harnesses, construction helmets, uh, town planning and actually transport planning. A lot of this is actually designed off this thing here. This, was des this is a design model by, that was constructed by uh, the Parisian uh, Le Cabousier, and it's a model called, oh, it's called Le Modular, which is, was done in the 1940s as a, as a design model from which all, a lot of other designs basically took their shape and informed the way that things were designed for the greatest degree of efficiency. Uh, Le Modular, this is basically, I mean, it's amazing how this has been applied, like I said, from everything, from car design to pots, to door design, to staircase design, to basically uh, so much of our Western world is shaped off the design um, that's um, coded to the ratios from Le Modular. So now, fair to say, this was the design here is of a six-foot male policeman. So, now, unless you're a six-foot male policeman, a lot of the things that are designed off this actually don't work. But it actually, because of the way we live in the world, we use all these things all the time designed off this image, we actually encode within ourselves the assumption of this design. And the assumption is that whatever is made for a six-foot male is actually, and is good for them is actually good for everybody. We just encode that within ourselves by the way that we participate uh, in the world. Now, fair to say, you didn't create this culture, and neither did I create this culture. This culture, this way of the things that are designed and the way you participate in the world, you know, shapes both men and women alike. But it doesn't mean, because we didn't design it, and because, you know, it doesn't mean that we're not formed by the conclusions it makes. We are all formed in this way. We can't not be. It actually happens on the, kind of on the level of subconsciousness. You know, just by the way that we participate in the world, we are ingesting the conclusion that what was ever designed for males is actually, is actually good design uh, for everybody. So that's the first thing to say. And that um, whatever we think about this design, this, of course, does not reflect the diversity or the, the, you know, the unity and diversity of male and femaleness being imaged into the world. It just doesn't do it. And so we need to be uh, alive to this. So A, the first thing is to recognize we live in a culture that is designed a certain way that makes us think a certain way. The second thing, as a disciple of Jesus, we can participate in cultural renewal of imaging God into the world by posturing ourselves actually as disciples. We, you know, we are disciples, we just got to remind ourselves that we're disciples. And why I say that is, you know, one of the great things about posturing yourself as a disciple means that, you know, there's no shame in learning something, right? It's no same shame to say, oh, I may have got something wrong and I need to take something else on board. Because you're a disciple, your job is to learn. 
And as disciples of Jesus, we're learning what it means to live in the world that God had uh, created. Now, let's flip to the next image here. From um, the 20th century, um, you know, from the beginning of the 20th century, there were no female musicians in the New York Philharmonic. And it was such a prestigious orchestra, they had a very tight policy about who could uh, join the Philharmonic, and they said, you know, the idea was it was completely on merit alone. We're completely blind to everything else, it's only merit that will get you into the uh, Philharmonic in New York. But then in the 70s, something began to change. From a 0%, um, it changed to 10% of the orchestra being women. And then in the 1980s, that rose to 50% of the orchestra being women. Now, what changed? Well, what changed is that little screen. <laughs> little screen. So this little screen screened off um, the, who was playing uh, and to, um, who was being... Uh, part of the audition. Now, blind auditions are actually a standard part of auditioning for orchestras, and this has actually led to the renewal of the orchestra as a cultural institution. But what blind auditions has actually also showed us is however what we're thinking about what's going on as being objective is in fact far from being objective, right? Because if what we were doing was thinking we were kind of objectively receiving data and then making decisions on that, then why the change via the blind audition process? What the blind audition process shows us is actually, as human beings, we are not as objective as we think that we are. And posturing yourself a disciple is completely a fine way to accept that conclusion. In fact, I want to suggest to you, you know, I found it super helpful when I'm in the process of decision-making or discussion. What I do is I just remind myself I'm a disciple here. And why, what that does is it frees me from the myth of my own objectivity. I don't have to defend it any longer. Because quite clearly I'm not objective. And it actually puts me in a, a posture of being able to learn and receive other people's perspectives. Because again, I'm learning. I'm learning how to do this. I'm learning how to understand the world uh, that Jesus does. It also, I, I, I'm able to catch myself and ask myself this question. Am I making this decision based on a whole range of cultural assumptions, or am I making this decision on the basis of the biblical narrative? See, it just frees you from actually having to be right all the time. Stop defending it. You're probably wrong most of the time, right? But that's okay. You're a disciple. You're learning. Just give up, right? Just give up on that idea. It's a myth. Welcome to the club of being a disciple and learning to participate in God's world. The third thing I want to say is this, and I'm going to come into land at this point, as all airline pilots say as they circle the airport for the third time, um, that as disciples of Jesus, we can tap into being part of fueling cultural renewal by imaging God as a diverse male and female unity of humanity only when we settle in our hearts that this is what Jesus wants. This is what Jesus wants. And until we've settled that in our hearts, we'll always be slightly unsure about what we're doing here. Does that make sense? As soon as we settle that in our hearts, I think the shift for me has actually been seeing that you know, part of the work of the cross has, you know, we think like, oh, well, this is... You know, the, 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 um, the reconciliations of male and female in terms of the image of God, that's incidental to the gospel. My shift has been to see that it's actually this is the work of the gospel, that this is what Jesus was doing 
on the cross was not only reconciling humanity back to God's self, but also restoring the image-bearing ability of humanity by reconciling male and female back to itself. You see, again, the whole idea of what God is trying to do in the world is restore the image-bearing ability of humanity. God is restoring the image of God in the world. And we see that not only through the diversity of the Christian movement, which of course is the most ethnically diverse movement in the world, but also through maleness and femaleness being reflected into the world in our everyday life. And I have to say, we need to be a bit more bolder on this. Remember the early church, how bold they were? Remember what was going on in the Gospels? I think as we tap into that, we can sense actually we need to be kind of bold and creative about this. We probably need to have a few awkward conversations about this, but just embrace the awkwardness. We're disciples, we're just learning how to do this. If you let yourself off the hook of needing to get everything right and perfect at the same time, it really, really helps. But the key thing here is you have to resolve in your heart that this is what Jesus wants. This is what Jesus is doing uh, in the world. That through this biblical narrative, through the power of the gospel, and through the story of the early church, you know, we need to be courageously stepping into this and seeing this as part of the work of the Spirit and not something incidental to the work of the Spirit. Is that cool? You guys have done very well. Let's stand together.